0: to overcome anxiety, if you go online and you Google anxiety, you'll often see people who are not knowledgeable talking about how you have to manage anxiety in life. You can't overcome it. It's an illness or condition you will have your whole life. That is completely false.
1: I'm Esther and you are listening to On Your Own, the podcast for Jewish girls living away from home. Each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you confidently navigate life on your own so you can achieve real growth and independence and take ownership of this foundational stage of your life. For additional resources, tips, and to stay up to date on future episodes, sign up for the On Your Own newsletter, link below in the description. Looking forward to spending some time with you today and now to this week's episode. Hey everyone, welcome to the first episode of On Your Own. My guest today is Dr. Sid Miller, renowned clinical psychologist and host of the nationally syndicated radio show, On Call with Dr. Sid Miller. In today's episode, we discuss the difference between fear and anxiety, the biggest misunderstanding people have about anxiety, what not to do when your friend or family member is feeling anxious, the war in Israel and how that is affecting our fear levels. The Step-by-Step Solution to Overcoming Anxiety, How to Take Action Even When You're Anxious, and much more. I was blown away by the insights I learned from Dr. Miller. I'm going to be really honest with you for a moment, even though we've just met, seeing as it's the first episode and all. When I was preparing for this interview, it was from the perspective of, I've never struggled with anxiety, but I want others who struggle to have resources, and I want to know how to help the people I love, many of who have anxiety, to get through it. Of course, that is not what happened. After what I learned from my conversation with Dr. Miller, I can say with 100% certainty that I had anxiety from 10th grade all the way till the end of seminary. I just did not know that it was anxiety. Looking back on those years, I always knew I struggled a lot with body image, being obsessed with health and all that fun stuff that I had to work through after seminary. But after learning about what anxiety actually is, I now know that I had major anxiety, around the topic of gaining weight, which, because it was totally not dealt with, led into a host of other struggles. I still cannot believe that I went through all of those years not knowing that there was a name for all the craziness going on in my head. It's my hope that this episode will be as enlightening to you as it was to me, and that you should also find it practical, because Dr. Miller walks us through how he coaches his very own patients to overcome their anxiety. That's as practical as it gets, isn't it? So, without further ado. Let's get to this week's episode. What is the difference between being afraid of something that's scaring you in the moment and having anxiety?
0: So we all get afraid, right? It's part of uh, the emotional profile that Hashem gives us. We have anger, we have fear, we have happiness, we have sadness. And so to be afraid is a normal, natural biological reaction to a situation that is frightening. Uh, Many people have heard of this notion of the fight or flight response. So when you're exposed to a stress, your body is, is set up to either fight the situation or flee the situation. So if I'm going to run away from a situation, that means that situation is causing me fear. So to be afraid, we're all afraid sometimes. You wouldn't be human if you weren't sometimes afraid. I might be afraid of an exam I have coming up. I might be afraid of going to seminary for the first time. These would be normal, natural fears. The difference between being afraid and having anxiety is when the fears become excessive and irrational. So excessive, by that I mean that the normal fear that I might have now grows to such a degree that I can't function. So it'd be normal, for example, to be nervous or afraid of an upcoming exam. But if I have anxiety to such a level that I forget everything I studied, that now becomes a problem. So we all have fear. Uh, in psychology, we tend to use the word anxiety to describe more excessive fear and also unrealistic fear. The big problem with anxiety or anxiety disorders, and by the way, I should mention that even though uh, anxiety disorders already are, represent a third of the population has a diagnosable anxiety disorder, the chatechila, right? Uh, sure. But yeah, a lot. It's very, very common. But that's only diagnosable anxiety. If you look at people who uh, wouldn't meet the criteria for diagnosis, but are still very, very anxious to the point that it's disrupting their lives, that's probably another third of the population. So the world, we are awash in people who are suffering from anxiety. And one of the things with anxiety, get back to its differentiation from fear, we tend to use fear for rational things. It's logical to be afraid of uh, or to be nervous about an upcoming exam. But when we talk about anxiety or anxiety disorders, what we're afraid of is things that are not rational, uh, that are not even happening, that in all likelihood would never happen. So we spend a lot of our time frightened, or again, to use the proper word, anxious about things that will never happen. It's what we call anticipatory anxiety, the worry about something that could happen in the future, but won't. Also, we should understand that in the literature and in normal talking, these words are often used interchangeably. So I'm very anxious, could be used for I'm very afraid. I'm just trying to make a distinction between the fact that we all have some fear sometimes it's part of being human, but when it becomes problematic is when it interferes with my ability to function. And in those cases, it's most typically fears of something that will never happen. Even most of the simple fears we have. I'm afraid I'll fail an exam. I'm not afraid of the fair exam to the point that I won't be able to write the exam. But since I've never failed an exam in my whole life, let's say, that fear is irrational. So you could almost say that all anxieties are irrational. And that, yes, we have a, a world where, to varying degrees, people will uh, regularly experience. Fears of things that will never happen. In fact, most fears in reality are not about actual things. Actual things we deal with. If I failed the exam, I'll deal with that. It's what if I fail the exam. I haven't even written the exam yet, and I'm already afraid of it. So for the purposes of our talk, we might want to think of anxiety as fear of things that will never happen.
1: Interesting, because even fear of things that haven't yet happened it hasn't happened yet, so what, technically, why are you afraid of it?
0: Right, and since uh, nobody uh, that we know of today is a navi, right? Right, there's no prophets, so we can't see the future, right? Right, we're not supposed to go to fortune tellers. That's a vaidazara, right? So, so no one can actually see the future,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but yet we are afraid of all these ideas we get in our head about the future. And you can have significant amount of distress. I work with people all the time who have an enormous amount of distress to the point that they can't function well in life, can't hold a job, can't sustain a relationship, can't be on their own, all because uh, are constantly running to doctors, all because of fears of things that have not happened. Wow. To tell you a, a story, um, years ago on a radio show that I, that I, w- that I had for a bunch of years, I uh, had this lady, she came on the air and she said, I need help because I'm very frightened. I'm very anxious about my children's health. Okay. So I said to her, okay, what's, uh, what's your story? She goes, well, I have two boys, one's 18 and one's 20. And I'm very worried about their health. I said, well, you know, parents are often worried, especially if the baby was born sickly. It's often parents can get overprotective where either of your sons uh, had difficult births. No, everything was smooth. I said, well, it could also happen if they went through some kind of frightening childhood experience that you might still be afraid of their health now that they're approaching 20. No, childhood was pretty normal. I said, it's something happened more recently, the last teenage years that's now put you on edge. She goes, no, actually, no, no, they've never really been very sick. <laughs> so I says, so what is it you're afraid of about the health of your sons? And she goes, what if they get sick? Wow. Right, So she's spent the last 20 years of her life anxious about something that has never happened. And there's no evidence that it's going to happen. I mean, sometime in their life, they'll get sick. That's the nature of life. But there is an enormous amount of energy and anxiety spent on things that are my anticipation of a bad outcome when there's no evidence that that outcome will ever happen. What do you
1: think is the biggest misunderstanding that people have about anxiety?
0: One of two things. One is, I think probably the main thing is, is that people do not separate out uh, emotion from fact or emotion from rational thinking. You know, the Tanya talks about... uh, Shlita of the Moach Al Halev, right? That the, your your mind has to have control over your heart. Okay, so the heart is the seat of emotions in these in this terminology, and most people think that because I feel something, that's equivalent to it actually being something. And in fact, a big part of therapy is to help people to realize that this thing that you are feeling is not a truth. The truth is something else. This is an emotion. And if you let your emotions uh, control without questioning whether they're true or not, that's when you get into trouble. So emotions are not facts. They're feelings. Facts are facts. And people get that very confused. Uh, I've had many, many patients who said to me, uh, who have health anxiety, and they've gone to, uh, you know, Tons of doctors and gone through tons of tests uh, to find out that there's absolutely nothing wrong with them, but they don't believe it. And when I ask them, well, you've just seen 12 doctors and had three MRIs and, and everything comes back fine. Why are you not feeling better? And they say, because I feel that I'm sick. And to them, that's equivalent to being a truth. So I think that's the biggest mistake people make. They look at anxiety as their truth when in reality it's something that because they harbor a fear in their thoughts they have fear in their hearts but there's no truth to what they're afraid of the fear is real because they've created a sense of a a problem that doesn't exist
1: and what what gives somebody a proclivity to having irrational fears over somebody who doesn't like, does it start from before they're born? Is it genetic or childhood experiences? What, what causes this?
0: So it's very, there's very little, everything in, in our, in ourselves is some combination of nature and nurture. All right. Of biology and environment, but there's very little evidence that anxiety is something that is genetic. Interesting. Uh, what is maybe genetic is arousability. So, when children are born, uh, there are some basic temperaments we tend to see in kids, but not that many of them. But that almost that from birth, children seem to be different on. But there aren't many of them. But one of them is arousability. This idea that you see, you'll put some kid on the floor. They're learning to crawl, and they're all over the place. You, you can't keep up with them. They're, they're motoring, they're moving. Um, you pick them up, they're more likely to cry. They, they demand more attention. They get more easily excited. And you have other kids, you put them on the floor, and they don't move. And you pick them up, and they barely make a peep. Uh, they tend to be, we think of them as calmer kids, whereas the other kids are more emotional kids. So that arousability is probably something we're born with. But whether that arousability actually turns into anxiety that's environment, because arousability could also be I just get very excited about stuff, right? I'm one of those people, bring me to a wedding, I, I love to dance, I'm very arousable, I love to for bring, I just get a great joy out of that. That's an arousable person, that somebody else could have that same arousability, but because of their experiences or what they saw growing up, that arousability translates into more anxiety. Okay. And so it's probably, there's no evidence that anxiety per se is genetic. There's a lot of evidence that we start picking up anxiety uh, at an early age. No desire to blame parents here, but parents who are anxious will model anxiety to their children. And so children tend to pick up their fears very often from their parents' own fears or how their parents cope with fears. Children look to their parents to figure out, how do I handle this? So you think of anything that goes on in a person's house or in the world, if parents handle it with a healthy, positive coping, then children will learn, under stress, these are these positive things I can do. But if the parents respond with a great deal of their own fear, then children learn to be afraid. If a parent, every time my child leaves the house, I give them a thousand instructions on how to be safe, even though all they're doing is crossing the street to the mall, then the child learns that my mother or my father is very nervous about what goes on outside of the house. And so there must be a reason. And so I learn to be nervous as well. So that's largely where it develops from. It could come later if you go through a trauma uh, then one of the consequences of trauma is developing of anxiety. Uh, but most typically, most people who have anxiety have never actually experienced any of the things they're afraid of. But what they've seen is uh, their parents' fear. And I'm not blaming the parents, the parents have no intention to do this, of course. And very often, parents make a great deal of effort. I, I see it every day uh, from people I work with who have young children who will tell me, the last thing I want to do is to show my child this because I don't want them to end up having all the anxiety I have. Uh, But unfortunately kids are very observant and very sophisticated at their level. And as much as you try to hide it, if you are it, they will perceive it. And then you have the interaction. So I could have two kids. One has a calm temperament. One has a more arousable temperament. I'm an anxious parent. My calm kid may not take up much of that because They're generally calm. They don't get excited. But my excited kid, most likely is that excitement is going to turn into anxiety as they perceive me being anxious as well.
1: How can we model, for parents, model coping mechanisms for the kids, but for ourselves once we've grown up, from what you spoke about of separating the truth from the feeling? Because how do we learn that?
0: So therapy is all about that, but you don't have to go to therapy to learn about it. Uh, the truth is, if you want to do well as a parent for your child in relationship to anxiety, faking it doesn't work. So you can't say, I'm really nervous, but in front of my kid, I'm going to look like I'm really calm, because they see right through that. Uh, so you really have to develop your own skills. And it's interesting, when I work with uh, little children with anxiety, uh very often the parents sit in because the child uh, doesn't want to be alone at first with the therapist or the child just feels more comfortable with the parent there. Uh, But almost always as we're sitting and starting to work with the child, the parents saying things like, wow, this is, this, I have, this is me. This is, I have the same problem. How could I do this? And how could I use that? And I understand why my son or my daughter is like this because I'm like this. And so the best way as parents would be to, be able to understand that if you do have a tendency towards anxiety, what do I need to do to overcome my anxiety so that I'm not pre- presenting a fake model to my children? I'm actually presenting a coping model. This is this is this is when I have some situation that frightens me. This is how I deal with it. This is how I make it better. And and it's the truth for all anxiety is. You really, if you are anxious, you have to ask yourself, "What is it I'm afraid of?" First of all, people will sometimes come in and they say, "I have a lot of anxiety," and I say, "What are you anxious about?" And it's not unusual for someone to say, "I don't know," because they they never they they, they're what they're doing is they're absorbed in their own uh, emotion, but they're not. I, I remember we said that a lot of people confuse their emotion for what's really happening. When in reality their emotion is coming about because of my thought. So, so I'll give a, a, a simple example. Let's say I have a stomachache. And I so that's the situation. And I tell you, Esther, I'm very nervous because I have a stomachache. That would be a misrepresentation of what's really going on. The reality is, is the stomach ache isn't causing me anxiety. It's my interpretation of what the stomach ache means. So if I think the stomach ache is some horrible disease, what if I have this horrible stomach disease? Then of course I'm going to be anxious. If I say, Oh, I have a stomach ache because I ate too much chulin on lunch on Shabbos, I'm not going to have anxiety. If someone says to me, uh, Congratulations, you want two tickets to fly to Disney World, let's say, right? If I Interpret flying somewhere as this wonderful adventure, I'm not going to have anxiety, of course. But if I interpret flying as this dangerous thing that could harm me, then I'm going to have anxiety. So, to understand anxiety, you have to understand that when someone comes to my office and I says, What makes you anxious? and they can tell me, they'll usually describe a situation. I have to fly. Or I have a doctor's appointment, or I have to speak in front of a group, or whatever it may be. Or I have to go to a social situation. They're describing a situation, but how anxiety actually comes about is my interpretation of the situation. So to to overcome anxiety, and just as a side note, if you go online and you Google anxiety, first of all, there's, I don't know how many hundreds of millions of sites uh, but you'll often see people who are not knowledgeable uh, talking about how you you have to manage anxiety in life. You can't overcome it. It's an illness or condition you will have your whole life. That is completely false. Really? That we all have anxiety sometimes, for sure. Like I said, Hashem gave us anxiety so we wouldn't uh, get eaten by animals or fall off cliffs. Okay, So Hashem gave us fear as a way of protecting ourselves. That we will always have as a part of our human condition, and we should have it because it's protective. Hashem gave us hunger so we should know to eat. Hashem gave us fear so we should know to get away from danger. That's normal. That should never change. People who have no fear ever tend to get into a lot of accidents. Okay, So fear is normal, but anxiety to the point that it, it disables me. That it makes my life difficult; that uh, my quality of life suffers. That level of anxiety is curable. So Mm -hmm. it's important, I think, to tell people that when you read online that anxiety is a condition, you have to learn to you can't you can't beat it; you just have to learn to live with it. This is not true. You can overcome anxiety. I've worked with many many people over the years in my practice. Uh, They walk in with anxiety of this level of. And they walk out without it.
1: And that can be purely through therapy. That wouldn't be including also maybe medications or things like that, lifestyle changes.
0: um, Medication, as a psychologist, I don't prescribe medication, but I'm certainly not against it. Uh, In some cases where the anxiety is so high that people can't even do the the psychological work that they need to do then it's actually a good idea. I do, however, and I'm certainly not against medication at all, uh, but I do see oftentimes too many people uh, who get prescribed medication, but not the therapy part. And so it does very limited, uh, medication for anxiety does very limited good on its own. Though it it can do good. I have people who come in and say, I'm on medication, should I get off it? No, why not? If If you're happy on it, if it works for you, you should stay on it. I have people come in and say, I absolutely don't want medication. And that's fine too. We can treat your anxiety without medication. If it got to such a level that we thought you needed some kind of aid, medical aid, then sure. What we want to do if someone needs help is you want to use all the tools that are available for them. But to treat anxiety, you don't need medication. Sometimes it's beneficial. Uh, In terms of lifestyle changes, uh, They're all good, but they don't necessarily provide the solution. So if I don't get enough sleep, getting good sleep is helpful. If I never exercise, I should exercise. Uh, Anything that makes me healthier is going to help. Obviously, I have a healthier body and a healthier mind, but it won't specifically overcome the anxiety. I have plenty of people that I work with that have high anxiety that are personal trainers, right? So they're in the gym every day, they're working with people, they're more fit. But if I have a real worry, being fit doesn't help me. If I if I honestly feel that, uh, what if I have a disease that I'm dying from, then getting a good night's sleep is not gonna make me feel any less worried about that outcome. So lifestyle is very important. Uh, medication can be a good tool. But fundamentally, anxiety comes from my misinterpretation of the danger of a situation. And so if I intervene there, I overcome the anxiety.
1: And so that primarily happens in therapy.
0: It does, but uh, we could teach it to your, to your uh, listeners right now. It's a very simple thing. If I, if you feel if you feel first of all to understand that anxiety manifests itself not only in my emotional mind I'm fearful I'm afraid I'm tense but very much in the body as well. So pretty well everything your body does anxiety can trigger. So anxiety can make your heartbeat faster, can cause stomach aches, back aches, headaches, you name it. Anxiety can trigger that and and always does. So when people get anxious, they're not only feeling afraid they're going to also feel some level, and in some people's cases, a lot of physical events as well. That's what a panic attack is. It's when your anxiety manifests itself in a very strong way within your body. Okay? So if I know that I'm anxious, then the first question I really have to ask myself is, as I said before, what am I anxious about? And if I say I'm anxious about... Uh, my uh, my presentation in I'm anxious about my exam next week. That's not really the truth. The truth is that my interpretation. I'm always trying to understand what are the what's the fear thing I'm saying. I have a, Why are you nervous? I have an exam next week. Okay, I could show you someone else who has an exam next week. They're not nervous. So why are you nervous? I'm afraid I'm going to fail. Ah, so there you have the thought. Once you have the fear, thought, that's what you want to key key in on. What is it that I'm afraid of? And go beyond the, the event, but more, much more so, in fact, completely so, what is my interpretation of this event? Do I see it as dangerous? Do I see it as safe? Do I see it as, again, like in flying, I can even see it as positive. You tell me, hey, I'm giving you a ticket anywhere you want to go. I'd be happy. I, but I have people that you get, you tell them that they'll be anxious because now they have this ticket and they're afraid to go. They don't want to go. Take back, I can't, uh, I can't do it. Or you tell me uh, there's this there's this party happening tomorrow night. You want to go? I love parties. I want to go. It makes me happy. For someone with social anxiety, it's the worst thing in the world.
1: But the party is not what they're afraid of.
0: No, it's their interpretation of what that party is going to mean, which in the case of social anxiety means I'm going to go there. Everybody's going to look at me. They're going to judge me. I'm going to blush. I'm going to not say anything. They're going to think I'm stupid. I'm going to open my mouth and I'm going to say it doesn't make sense or no one will want to talk to me. So in the case of social anxiety, the social situation, I interpreted as very dangerous because there's going to be all this judgment against me. So the party is the party i like parties it's a positive event if i'm afraid of judgment it's an anxiety provoking event so to to deal with anxiety the first thing you want to do and this i know you do a lot of work with young women who are going out on their own the first time at younger ages ages the unknown can be frightening right but if 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 they say to you what am i anxious about i'm anxious about being in a new city you want to dig a little deeper You want to go, what is it about being in a city, new city, that you would find frightening? And they may say something like, well, what if something happens and my parents are far away? So it's really not the city. The city is just a place. It's how they interpret what that experience is going to be. So once you know what the fear is, then you have to ask yourself, is it actually happening or not? So, to take our example, I'm afraid that if I get sick or something happens, my parents won't be there. So, is that actually true? Is that actually happening? Are you actually? Is something actually wrong?
1: When you say happening, Do you, actually you mean need right to now, like in this
0: right moment, now. in the moment that I'm feeling anxiety? Is this thing actually happening? I will tell you that in my whole career, I have. I have to say probably never, but maybe there was one exception ever seen something that someone is afraid of actually happen. Wow. Okay. So they anticipate bad outcomes, but those things never happen. And I think it's because what do I, what am I afraid of? I'm afraid of those things that in my mind represent a danger, but there's no, there's no weight on these things. They're not actually happening when things are actually happening. Our response is different.
1: With the with the war going on now, um, I was getting all afraid of because I was hearing the sirens. What if a bomb lands? And my husband said, if a bomb landed, you wouldn't know about it. You'd be dead, so you don't have to worry.
0: <laughs> right, so that's a, a, a different approach. He's right, of course, but it's a different approach. Uh, the other thing you could say, so so in the war right now, it's a, it's a more um, nuanced way we have to look at it. So yeah. is there a danger? Yes, there is. But uh, but if my thought is, what if a bomb lands on our house from an anxiety treatment perspective, what you would say is there is a risk because here there is a truth to it. Okay. But is it is it actually happening? No, it is not. So we'll take precautions, but I don't have to live in the fear of something that has not yet happened. But again, it's a different reality right now because the... The danger is real. But there are people right now outside of Israel, I know I see it in some of my patients, who are carrying the same fear as if they were in Israel. And then you can more safely say that, is there any evidence of what you fear? Is it actually happening in your environment? And it's not. And so there you could say the fear is irrational. But it's not irrational in Israel. So you have to be a little more careful. The fear is very, very real and possible and has happened to people. But right now where I am, am I still okay? I'm still okay. So let's take the precautions for what the reality is. That's the problem-solving part, but not catastrophize something that is not yet and God willing will never be something that I will have to deal with. But overall, if we take it outside of the tragedy of of war, the things we're afraid of don't happen. And so if I can tell myself, I'm afraid, what if I'm sick and my parents aren't there? Uh, Are you sick? No. So do you have any plans to get sick? Obviously not. So you're worrying about something that is not happening and will likely never happen and even if you do get sick down the road you'll be adjusted here your feelings may be very different but the reality is is in the right here and now is it happening
1: does knowing that it's take away the fear though knowing that it's not happening right now does that make the fear just disappear
0: uh, if you, if you, uh, of course, we're giving you kind of like the uh, Cole's note version of, of the therapy, uh, but if I can bring my rational mind to bear on my emotional mind and I'm consistent with it, it'll go away. It will go away. I just have to be consistent. So every time I have this fear of what if I get sick, if I say to myself, because what happens is. So, right, for whatever reason, let's say I grew up in a household where my parents were very worried about health, and so I grew up worried about health, and now I'm going away to a different city, and so my the fears that are in my mind come from what I was traditionally afraid of, okay? So I say, well, what if I get sick? And then you, you say to your brain, am I actually sick? No. So... This is an irrational fear. You have nothing to fear. If you were to get sick, you'll deal with it, but you're not sick now. There's not no point in even thinking about this. I mean, what, what what would you do? Run to the doctor? You go to the doctor, you go, he goes, What's wrong? You go, what if I get sick? Doctor's gonna go, do you have symptoms of anything? No, but what if I do later? Well, then come back later. Right now, there's nothing here. There's nothing to be afraid of. So you tell that to your brain, okay? And that cuts short that story for that moment. Then two days later, an hour later, a week later, you have the same thought again. Because it's a thought that's been in your life for a long time. So again, you talk to yourself. But what if I get sick? Are you you a prophet? No. Are you sick right now? No. Do you have any symptoms of being sick now? No. So there's nothing happening now. So I don't have to think about it. And I do this every time. What happens is my brain eventually does its cheshmet, its calculation. And it says, every time I say, what if I'm sick? I feel nervous. Every time I talk to myself and say, that's not happening, I feel a little better. And the truth is, it's actually not happening. So at first, it's an effort on the part of the person to challenge their fearful thought. But eventually, since they're challenging their fearful thought with the truth, your brain eventually says, that's the truth. And it stops having the thought. One important thing, if we talk about how do you challenge these fears, they have to have two qualities to them. One is they have to be true. So if my fear is, what if I get sick? A good challenge would not be, I'm never going to be sick a day in my life for the rest of my days. Because that's ridiculous. And your brain's gonna go, that's ridiculous. So that's not gonna help. But a good challenge would be I have no evidence of being sick. I'm young, I'm healthy, I have not there's I could get sick later, but I'll deal with that later. There's no evidence of being sick. That's the truth. And challenges also have to be targeted. Again, let's say my fear is what if I get sick? A good challenge would not be, it's a beautiful day. Look at all those lovely children playing. Because Yes, it's a beautiful day. Look at all those lovely children playing, but I'm sick, but I may be sick. It doesn't help. So it has to be targeted to exactly what you're afraid of. And it has to be honest. And your brain eventually will switch its thinking if you continuously present it with the truth.
1: Does all anxiety come from our mind or can anxiety sometimes come from the body and then trigger the mind?
0: It's always the mind, though the source could be the body. In other words, if um, I may be anxious about something and have it manifest in my body before I'm aware of it in my mind. That's one thing. Another thing is, is my mind and my body, we're not talking about the neshama here, right? The mind and the body are one organism. So they communicate all the time with each other. So... If I feel nervous, that will sig- That will be in my body somewhere. Oftentimes, people who have what we call health anxiety or somatic anxiety, what makes them anxious is their again misinterpretation of normal things in their body. So some people can become very hyper focused on their on this sensations in their body. It's almost as if they give themselves a, a scan every day when they wake up to see if everything's okay. And that can trigger anxiety in a person because my body is not a perfect machine. Little things are going on all the time. And if I focus in on something that's nothing, like that stomach ache, but making it to something, I can now train my brain to always check my stomach to make sure it's okay. And in doing so, I start imagining all kinds of things, and so the interaction. But it typically will be, it it, it won't turn into anxiety if I don't interpret it as frightening. Again, if uh, if I have a stomach ache and I think it's what I ate for lunch, stomach's <laughs> still there, but I don't. I'm not afraid of it. Interesting.
1: Would you say sometimes our body can react to a fear before our brain? Um, it's just something interesting. I saw that. Just with the rockets and things here, there was one very, very loud interception right over my house. It sounded like the whole street was gone. Barak was just an interception. And before Mm -hmm. I even had time to process what was going on, my whole body started shaking. I hadn't even thought, like, maybe I had without consciously thinking, but I started shaking. So that's the
0: thing. So that's the thing. The the mind and the body are one. Your mind, even on even on a non-conscious level, and we don't mean subconscious in the old Freudian notions, but just with a lot of processing goes on in our brain that we're not consciously paying aware of. So your brain is processing that event, even if you're not aware that it's processing that event. And then it's signaling your body because that's the classic fight or flight. There's a danger and your body reacts. and in, in, potentially traumatic situations like you're talking about, the body will literally react within a, a millisecond to move, to do something. My brain may not catch on to the thought that triggered that. But if you weren't in the circumstances you're in and you heard a loud noise, your brain may not immediately go to, this is danger. You may go, I wonder what that is in the circumstances that you find yourself, your brain knows what that is. And so it immediately triggers, and think about it, it's a good thing because what it does is it immediately triggers your body to react, which Mama should may really need to react.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's something interesting I've noticed with anxiety that sometimes the thing that you're very anxious about requires action. So for example, I'm moving to a new city I'm anxious about it, but I also need to find myself an apartment. I need to figure out my situation there. But the anxiety kind of freezes you. And then because you haven't taken action, that fear becomes even more like I'm moving to a new city and I don't have an apartment. And then you become even more afraid and freezes you even more. And it looks like it kind of makes a cycle. So how can we take positive action when we feel anxious instead of freezing and making it even worse?
0: So again, if you're able to say, what am I anxious about? Like I'm moving to this new place and I'm so nervous. I can't function. I can't find the apartment. I can't even get get out of bed to look in the newspaper uh, or look online. This is because at that point, the anxiety has become overwhelming and it really very much takes over much of my processing anxiety when it's very high, uh, takes over most of my brain power at that moment. And I don't really have a lot of brain capacity for much else. So again, if I start off with saying, okay, what am I anxious about? Sometimes people aren't even aware and never become aware. I can't really, ever really pinpoint it. But the fact that I tell myself what am I anxious about automatically breaks the anxiety to some extent. Because what I'm doing is I'm saying, here I am, the anxious person, pause, pause, let me look at myself, the anxious person. And so I become, it's almost as if at one point I'm the participant in the experiment of anxiety. And then I remove myself and become the scientist observer of the pursuit who's experiencing anxiety. So just the effort to say to myself, what is making me anxious will cut the anxiety. Identifying what's making me anxious can eliminate the anxiety and that will free me up to be able to act. But it's also true that sometimes just acting will give me a jump start to overcome my anxiety. But I need ultimately to know what I'm afraid of or it won't go away.
1: What effect does seeing terrible things that would be anxiety-inducing happening to other people have on us? For example, reading news about things that are happening negatively to other people or seeing things on social media. Does our body take in some of that anxiety just by seeing an anxiety invoking image or video?
0: Without a doubt. Uh, It will depend on the individual. There's some individuals who are better able to buffer their emotional self from what they're seeing around them. The, The horrible, horrible things we're seeing now from Israel, I don't think there's anybody who is not affected by them. Uh, But there are people who are going to be much more disabled because it triggers so much more intense emotion in them than someone else who's perhaps by nature calmer or has a better handle on their anxiety. So I don't think there's anybody that will not be affected, that will not. This has destabilized our, our whole communities, our whole world. There's no way to not be affected by it. But then, even with them, there are people who will have better capacity to cope with what is clearly not 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 happening, but it's clearly very much happening. But they'll be better able to cope with that reality than others, and or and or uh, they're just, as we talked about very much at the beginning, they're not the most arousable people, and we know this. We see this with in war times, but even in normal times, how some people. Uh, no matter what, what what's happening to them, they seem to to cope. They seem to do okay. And there's other people, the smallest thing, and uh, they can't function. So, in, so that's always true. And in the intensity of the horror of what's going on now, it's even more true.
1: What advantage do you think people who either are right now dealing with anxiety or who have overcome anxiety have over people who are less arousable, as you mentioned?
0: So there's no uh, necessary... Again, the arousability aspect, not the anxiety part, the arousability part by itself has certainly some advantages, right? If I'm the type of person who's very placid and uh, never get excited about anything, I may, not, I may not work as hard to achieve things in life. Uh, I may not uh, certainly enjoy life as someone who's more gets more passionate about things uh, so someone's is arousable on some level is engaging in life more hmm. uh, but once it turns to anxiety uh, there's no benefit in fact uh, there's this anxiety disorder called generalized anxiety disorder which is very fancy diagnostic term for being a worrier and people who are worriers have a tendency to believe that somehow the act of worrying is protective. So my child goes off to see a movie at the mall, somehow in my mind, if I warn them of all the possible dangers and worry about them, I there somehow magically avoid them from happening. But worry is never adaptive. So problem solving is adaptive. If I actually have a problem, and this will go in in situations of uh, of real danger, like what's going now, on now in Israel, the the ability to see a problem and be able to engage in problem solving, while dampening down some of the natural excessive worry—it's not even excessive; it's natural anxiety that's going on right now. My ability to dampen that a little bit and problem solve a problem is very adaptive. But the act of simply worrying does not lead to solutions. It just leads to more fear, and that's not adaptive. It's understandable. Right now, a million percent understandable, but it's not necessarily adaptive. Very
1: interesting. What advice would you give to somebody who is themselves not struggling with anxiety and maybe never has, who lives in close proximity with somebody who does, a family member or a friend what would be important for them to know
0: that's just a great question because usually family members uh not inadvertently they don't want to do this but they actually validate the anxiety they make it worse why because imagine you have a, a spouse or a child and they're very anxious let's say you're you're uh, Your child is very anxious and you want them, and they have to go um, to the store and pick up something for themselves. But they're very nervous because they have social anxiety and they are afraid on the street a lot. And so you say, So you love them. You don't want them to suffer. So you say, So it's okay. It's okay. Don't worry. You stay home, relax. I'll go get it for you. You're doing a loving action, but what you're actually doing is validating their fear. You're telling them, you're right, don't go. Which in their mind gets interpreted as, I shouldn't go. Which their brain goes, why is mom going when we're not going? It must mean that it's actually dangerous for us because otherwise why would she tell us we should stay home? So family members very often in their desire to uh, protect and make their, their family member feel better will do the thing that the anxious person can't do. But in so doing... Uh, they validate the fear. What you really would want to do is to tell the person, really, you should go. There's nothing to be afraid of here. If you can't go yourself, I'll go with you this time. But next time you'll go by yourself. So to so, but family members often don't do that.
1: I've seen that a lot. You know,
0: if you have, a, yeah. if your spouse is afraid to drive over a bridge, this is a common fear. So every time you have to drive over a bridge, you go. You know what? I'll drive. Don't worry right? And then what happens? The person can never drive over that bridge. If you were to say, listen, it's perfectly safe. I know you're nervous. You're going to drive. I'll be beside you to reassure you that everything's fine and you'll see how you can do it. That's what a family member should do. But usually we just want to make them feel better. So we allow them to avoid the thing they're afraid of. When it comes to anxiety, avoidance is the worst of the worst. So, for example, if I'm afraid, uh, if I'm afraid to go to um, a party, and my family members tell me it's okay, you don't have to go; you can stay home. We'll go. We'll say you couldn't make it. Then I avoid going to the party. What does that do? That validates my fear because when I thought I had to go to the party, my anxiety, a fear of being judged, my anxiety rises and rises and rises. It would actually rise until I get there. But if I got there, My anxiety would start coming down as I start realizing there's no danger here. But if my family member says, no, 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 stay home, avoid this. You don't have to go. Then I feel better then. So what happens? I'm getting nervous, nervous, nervous. I have to go. Then I don't have to go. My anxiety goes down because I don't have to go. And my brain goes, oh, it really was dangerous because look what happened. When I thought I had to go, I got all anxious. I got all fearful. My body was reacting. Now that I don't have to go, my body is calm. Clearly, I just avoided a very dangerous situation for me. So, But the problem is that family members all too often, out of the best of intentions, help the person to avoid and not deal with the thing they're afraid of, and that just validates that fear and makes it worse.
1: It's very uncomfortable to watch someone you love on the way to the party, for example, getting more and more and more anxious and frantic. It's really an uncomfortable thing for somebody to go through.
0: Sure. It absolutely is for them. And you're right for you seeing it. But if you're able to understand either because you know this stuff or you listen to your podcast, you've done the therapy, then you understand that it's uncomfortable. And the best way to ultimately help this person is to help them tolerate the discomfort so that they can learn that there's nothing to be afraid of. Right. I need I can't overcome anxiety. I can't overcome a fear of flying if I never, ever get on an airplane. So I have to, part of the therapy is not just the stuff that we've been talking about. It's once you have this tool of what am I anxious about and challenging my anxiety, once you have this tool, you don't have to go and apply it. So if I work through this tool very, very well in terms of my fear of people judging me in social situations, it's not going to really take until I actually go to a social situation and use it.
1: So theoretically knowing that, it's not actually as bad as I think, is not going to help. You have to actually experience that it wasn't as bad as you thought.
0: Right. Uh, We can borrow a term, uh, an old psychodynamic term, even though this is not that type of therapy, which is you need a corrective emotional experience. You need to go into a situation that used to make you afraid, go in there, work through your anxiety and have it start going down, and now you've learned that what was frightening is no longer frightening. It may not happen all at once, but you have to to get to that experience. Otherwise, it's only theoretical. And I don't really know until I'm there. So good therapy involves giving a a person all these tools that we're talking about and then helping them to uh, go into those situations that they've been previously avoiding, Very often, slowly. So... If I'm afraid of uh, of a party, maybe my first experience out shouldn't be a party of 1,000 people. Maybe it's a, a gathering of three people because that's not so bad. Though ironically, Esther, this is interesting. Some people with social anxiety, if we're talking about that, are more afraid of the three people than the 1,000 people, right? Because they and- say 1,000 people, I can get lost. Three people. I can't, I can't hide anywhere. For most people, it's the other way around, but again, it's always interpretation. So you you can best help your loved one by teaching them this tool, helping them into these situations, but you might want to do it in a a gentle way. So we call this in therapy systematic desensitization. If I'm working with someone who's afraid of uh, taking a bus, taking a metro, taking an airplane, going to social situations, whatever it might be, we create first a hierarchy of the situation. from What's the least frightening to the most frightening? And then we start with the least frightening and we help you to build success upon success upon success.
1: Do you have any books or resources that you would recommend to someone who wants to learn more about this for themselves?
0: Actually, the the best book out there doesn't really talk about well was not originally designed for anxiety It was designed for depression uh, but there there's a lot of overlap and now the more modern versions of it um, are depression and anxiety and really what it talks about is very much these techniques that we've been talking about and gives all kinds of exercises and ways to work through it all. Uh, it's called the new mood therapy by a Dr. Burns, B-U-R-N-S. It's very, very good because it's very, it's very tachlit-oriented too. It's very practical. Um, so that's a great book to use. Uh, I often even use it with people uh, that uh, I'm working with. It gives it good exercises. Books are great. I will say, however, that any, any book that takes on a cognitive behavioral therapy approach, to dealing with anxiety, or one of the offshoots of cognitive behavior therapy, there's something called dialectical behavior therapy, there's mindfulness is an offshoot of cognitive behavior therapy, any book that uses that approach will be helpful. The limitation for books, though, is that um, they can't check in with, you can't check in with them how you're doing. So if you're doing the exercise in a way that's not helpful, for example, I once gave a workshop uh, to a group that was actually an anxiety group at one of the uh, community centers. They were being run by a counselor of some sort. I don't remember. And I came to give a talk on exactly what we're talking about. And they had already been in a program that had workbooks and exercise books and everything. And, I went through the whole thing as I'm telling you, the challenging. and Now, the the whole thing with challenging your fear is you actually have to do it in the moment it's happening, not later. Okay? It doesn't help later. Um, And I went through this whole thing and one point towards the end of my whole presentation, somebody put their hand up and said, yeah, this is what we've been teaching, we've been taught, but it doesn't work. And I said, well, that's odd because this like always works. I mean... Esther, I even tell my patients, uh, I'll, this is a, when you come in with anxiety, you do exactly what I tell you to do. I'll give you a money back guarantee.
1: Wow.
0: I've never had to give the money back, thank God, because they get helped. So I said, it has to work. It always works. Explain to me what you've been taught. So the guy says, well, we were taught that Uh, when we have anxiety, we should identify the thought that's frightening us. We should write down the challenge and that this will be helpful. Like we're talking about, there's some other things too we didn't get into, but basically that's it. And I said, okay, so tell me exactly how you do this. So I said, so I go through my day and things happen. I get anxious. And at the end of the day, I sit down and I write down, right? This is the thing that anxious and this is how I should challenge it. And I said, but that's like saying, here are all the techniques I need to use to not smoke the cigarette. I'm going to use them after I finish the cigarette. Right, your day, the experience is over. How could going back on it hours later give you a corrective emotional experience? So the problem with, with uh, self-help books is that we don't always read them with a, with the full understanding of what we need. But I would say that for a lot of people whose anxieties are uh, relatively modest, uh, it may give you all the tools you need. But if it's someone with higher anxiety, uh, self-help books are not going to, it's it's doubtful they'll be enough. You really want to get it. And the beauty of this type of therapy also uh, I think is worth pointing out to people. It's not years of therapy. It's, Uh, When people come in and say, how long is this going to take? I said, I can't tell you exactly, but let's guesstimate 12 to 14 to 16 sessions. That's it. That's it. Now, people often stay on because the anxiety is also uh, led to other things. But if if you were to look up what are manualized treatment approaches for anxiety, where it's step by step by step, they're usually 12 to 16 sessions. Now, that doesn't mean the person may not need to do more work on it on their own or with the help of therapy or in a more uh, you know delayed people will come in for the first sessions and then maybe they'll come for two weeks later and then three weeks later and then, so you can gradually but to learn how to do it to learn how to do it well and, and even more so if people say well when, when will I start to see benefits I say within the first four sessions by the fourth session if we don't see anything it may not be huge, but if for the first four sessions, we don't see anything, I'm your therapist and I'm doing something wrong. Because if you do exactly what I say, you'll start seeing the benefits. So the other beauty of doing this, whether you do it with a therapist or on your own is the results are, if you do it as one should, the results are almost immediate.
1: What is the name of this type of therapy? So if someone's looking to find a therapist who works with this type of treatment.
0: Cognitive, cognitive behavior therapy. Okay. So you're working on the thoughts and the behaviors that lead to, so the thoughts are all these thoughts that I have that are making my myself anxious. How do I challenge them? Uh, I have to work on the behaviors. So I'm not avoiding. So I'm engaging in things that help to real. It's, it's that like idea of you can't just talk the talk. You got to walk the walk. So I can't just say I'm, it's not dangerous, but still avoid it. <laughs> my brain's going to go, He's saying one thing, but he's doing another, and we're going to follow what he's doing. So it's called cognitive behavior therapy. As I said, that's the um, uh, that's the original version. Uh, uh, there's others called dialectal behavior therapy. That's used more these days for addiction, but it comes out from that same area uh, or, or uh, people who are suffering from uh, uh, more intense emotional regulation, personality issues. And I think that's very popular right now is something called mindfulness, which also has a meditation component to it, but is also founded in cognitive behavior therapy as well. So you want to look for someone, if it's anxiety, uh, both the American Psychological Association and Canadian Psychological Association have identified cognitive behavior therapy as the treatment of choice for anxiety. And there's a lot of science behind it, which if you want to be scientific about it and medical about it there's a lot of research supporting uh, the efficacy of cognitive behavior therapy for anxiety
1: Dr. Miller thank you so so much
0: my pleasure and aslacha and all you're doing
1: thank you thank you for listening to this week's episode of On Your Own if you like this episode or think it will be useful to someone else please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts I would love to connect with you If you've got any questions, feedback, or ideas for future episodes, you can email me at onyourownpodcast at gmail.com. See you next week. And in the meantime, happy adulting.